and welcome to the first episode of season two of the God in Film podcast, hey. where a Christian, where a Christian and an atheist <laughs> dive into the best that cinema has to offer and see if we can find any elements that have parallels with gospel or any other Bible stories. I'm podcaster and nappy changing regional champion 2020, Giles Goff. And I'm photographer and amateur sonogram watcher, Phil Coleman. And during this time of local lockdown, we'll be trying to avoid the temptation to sink into a pit of existential despair by sticking our film geek fatigues on to analyse Spike Lee's 2020 agitprop film, The Five Bloods. Now, it probably needs to be said that we decided to do this film at the start of the second season months ago. But at the time of recording, we are less than two weeks after the death of Chadwick Boseman which made me want to do this film even more. Now, I'm not trying to butt in on anyone's grief. We both know that Chadwick meant an awful lot more to people of colour than he could ever do to me, purely in terms of representation. But even so, I felt utterly bereft when he died, like we'd had something stolen from us far too soon, and I think, like a lot of people, I'm mourning the loss of stories that we'll never get to see. I saw this film when it was released, but Phil saw it a few days ago. So, Phil, what's it like to watch this film after the death of Chadwick Boseman? Well, it has this sort of, like, overarching feeling of of loss. Like, like obviously the film has a feeling of loss anyway, because it's to do with the Vietnam War and sort of to do with veterans who have dealt with loss just on an hourly basis, basically, you know. But considering the fact that this wonderful actor had so much left in him, no one had a single clue. No one had a clue what he was going through. It's 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 really difficult to, to sort of comprehend. But seeing him in this film felt sort of like an epilogue. And it, it was comforting in a way. Yeah, no, I can see that. For me, I can admire what this film is trying to do, but I think it only succeeds in parts rather than as a whole cohesive narrative. I feel like Lee is so desperate to point out the real-life history and the forgotten victims of white supremacy that sometimes I felt that this film didn't want to be a drama so much as a documentary. All that being said, said the parts that worked for me really worked for me and have stayed with me ever since mm-hmm. so without further ado let's hear phil's facts right let's go and get the obvious out of the way so the five bloods is a 2020 american war drama film directed by spike lee the film's plot follows a group of four aging vietnam war veterans who return to the country in search of the remains of their fallen squad leader as well as the treasure that they buried okay. while serving there the five bloods as they were seen on the movie, in present-day scenes, were named Paul, Melvin, Otis, Eddie, and David. These are also the individual names of the five members of the African-American vocal group, The Temptations. Fallen, <laughs> I know, right? Their fallen blood yeah. um, was the leader and inspiration for others during their days in the Vietnam War and was named Norman. Uh, songwriter Norman Whitfield produced virtually all of the Temptations music during the time at Motown Records during the 60s and 70s. Oh, well, that's brilliant. I didn't realise that. I had no idea either until I looked it up, and it sort of makes a lot of sense. I like the parallels. You know, it's interesting. The film was originally titled The Last Tour, and it was written by Danny Bilson and Paul DeMio to tell the story of four aging white veterans who were heading back to Vietnam. Oliver Stone was attached to direct at one point, but moved on. Producer Lloyd Levin read in an interview that Lee's favourite film is The Treasure of Sierra Madre, which is... I was um, wondering when that was going to come up. Yeah, that's that's from 1948, and... Thought Lee would appreciate the similar elements um, in the last tour. Lee liked the premise, and he and his co-writer, Kevin Wilmot, rewrote the script to make it about black soldiers. Now, I'm assuming that you've got something to say about... (laughs) <laughs> the Treasure of Sierra Madre. Treasure of Sierra Madre, it's a, it's a Humphrey Bogart film, and uh, the short version is is people start to go a bit mad just at the thought of treasure. They end up not really getting 
it properly. I think that's fascinating, the idea that it was written with um, white characters in mind, because for me, the whole thing about this film, the entire USP about it, is the fact that it is black Vietnam veterans, because despite them being highly represented in the number of GIs over there, we don't really see that many black Vietnam veterans in popular culture. It tends to be uh, white vets um, yeah. that, that we see, I think, you know, so I, I, I find that fascinating, that. That's that's really interesting. I thought it was. I think it's a nice sort of like. I say a play on convention. It it, it just should be represented anyway, and it's mm. nice to see it represented. Yeah. According to an interview with Giancarlo Esposito, he was in talks to be cast alongside Samuel Jackson, Denzel Washington, and John David Washington. However, due to <sighs> scheduling conflicts, it all fell apart. Mm. I feel like yeah, there should no. be a section of my trivia called. What if? Because I do this a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a yeah, that's a shame because that yeah, that sounds like a, a killer sort of cast list. Not to say that the actors in, in this didn't do a fantastic job, but you you do get stuck with, with the what if sometimes, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Isaiah Whitlock Jr.'s Melvin utters an extended multi-syllabic delivery of the word that means poo, but it begins with S, and I realised that I can't actually say that on this podcast, but we are a, a family-friendly podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so I can't say that, but um, it's a direct callback to his portrayal of State Senator Clay in HBO's The Wire from 2002, Wire. Yeah. where uh, Whitlock's Senator Clay would frequently spin out the same unique take on the word. <laughs> and I've got to say, I've not yeah. really watched The Wire but when he uttered that word in that particular way, I was like, I recognise that. And, <laughs> and, and, and how does that work? You know, what I mean? it must be so prevalent in pop culture. Yeah. Like I don't know. Yeah. Just I love I love things like that where they pop up. Like it's so popular. You think I've definitely heard that before, but I've not yeah. actually heard it. <laughs> it's yeah. Well, strange. Another reason for the men to be their same old age in Vietnam flashbacks is to put primary focus on Chadwick Boseman's character, who died young in the war, being the only young man in the group. And I think mm. that's interesting. And I think it's a really good plot device as well, because I was when I was watching it, that was one of the things that I picked up on the most. I was just like, yeah, he didn't get to live to this age. Mm. I like the fact that that's represented visually. I, I think the, the reason that Lee chose that, made that decision, was that you wouldn't have the same emotional impact if you if you then swap in another another other actor in, yeah. uh, in that point you know it's an interesting choice I'm not 100% certain whether it works for me but it does underscore the idea that, that Storm and Norman never never made it back you know I really like it at first I was like what you know like it was a little bit it was slightly <laughs> jarring but I got used to it quite quickly yeah. and I was like actually you know okay I can accept this it's a brilliant representation of that phrase they shall not grow old as we that are left grow old yeah, I like um, that a lot. I like yeah, that a lot. So. Okay, Spike Lee's love for the 72-year-old classic The Trevor is Sierra Madre from 1948 is also evident in Chavi's reply to Paul that we don't need no stinking official badges, which mirrors the iconic line from Sierra Madre ranked as the 36th most famous line in movie history. Again, it's one of those lines that I know that I've ne- I did- I never knew before now that it came from The Treasure of Sierra Madre before. So that's great. Yep, no, I would never have known either if I hadn't researched yeah. this <laughs> but it's good. I'm, I'm quite glad that I've got that knowledge in my repository now, as it were. So the line 
Madness! Madness! Spoken by Otis is a quote from the movie The Bridge on the River Kwai from 1957. It's hard to tell if this was an homage to the film by Spike Lee or one of the writers, or if it is intended to convey that Otis is a fan of the movie reflecting on the futility war. In either case, it is clear that the line is alluding to that famous scene after the bridge is destroyed. Yeah. <laughs> There's obvious okay. foreshadowing in the film, most notably Melvin's allusion to his inevitable fate by claiming that he would never jump on a grenade to save the group. But even the blood's main credo has relevance to the ending. The bloods don't die, we multiply. Bears significance by alluding to the fact that their treasure is given to their families and descendants who are each fighting the battles of oppression in the front lines of America. In essence, the bloods have multiplied in spreading their wealth across generations as well as their bond between brothers at war. That is brilliant. That is phenomenal. See, okay. I know, right? So the line... Uh, the the line "Bloods don't die, we multiply." Are you familiar with um, just in passing the Crips and the Bloods? Uh, yeah, I'm familiar yeah, okay. with what so, they are and who um, they are. Yeah, so Tucky Williams was the the founder of the uh, of the Crips, the, the the sort of street gang most famous for wearing blue. The Bloods uh, obviously famously wore wore red. And one of the the phrases that you saw in his autobiography was "Crips don't die, we multiply." And what that was a reference to was the idea that they would kind of they would effectively take over other gangs you know you you would sort of right. have the choice to become affiliated with the with the crips or be wiped out with them hence the crips don't die we multiply it's just one of those phrases that is in is in the popular culture but that idea about the, the way the money goes towards like the black lives matter group at the end and stuff yeah. like that that is fantastic that's really i, I nice think touch. it's it's so poignant, especially this day and age as well, like, and how much more prevalent things are getting just yeah. as the days pass. Anyway, that's awesome. me. Fantastic. Thank you, Phil. I really appreciated those. No worries. Now, um, for our guest this week, we have a very set special guest who I'm super excited for. For this episode, we needed someone who could sum up the Vietnam War as concisely and engagingly as possible. So for that, I found the best history teacher that I or anyone else for that matter knows. I'll let him introduce himself. Uh, hi, thanks for having me on the podcast. Uh, my name's Tim Clake and I'm a history teacher from Devon. Uh, I won't say exactly what school I'm from for reasons of basic professionalism, um, but I've been teaching about the Vietnam War and a load of other topics for well over a decade now. So uh, really looking forward to talking to you uh, about the Vietnam War and everything that you want to know, really. Mr. Clake, it is an honour for you to join us. So let's jump straight into it. How would you sum up the Vietnam War in two or three minutes? Well, in two or three words, I'd say a huge mess. Um, <laughs> it's a 20-year conflict, give or take, that really should have been done and dusted much quicker than that. Hmm. For me, I sum it up into a variety of phases, the first being the withdrawal of the French um, after their defeat at Dien Bien Phu in 1954, um, with the resulting Geneva Accords, which split the country between North Vietnam under Ho Chi Minh's communist regime and South Vietnam, being uh, backed by the capitalist USA, of course. Yeah. Um, and then that really uh, prompting the American uh, policy, if you like, of domino theory. This idea that um, by providing a bulwark against communism in Southeast Asia, you were going to prevent the spread of communism across the world. And something that had a huge impact on American foreign, foreign policy, really, for the next 20 or 30 years. Yeah. Um, then, of course, you've got Kennedy's uh, sort of puppetry, if you like, with uh, the Vietnamese leader, Jim, in the years after that, mm -hmm. where elections were either rigged or they were deeply unfair. Uh, and with Jim's uh, eventual removal um, in a coup in 1963, just mere weeks before Kennedy himself was assassinated. Uh, and, and the gradual build-up of American forces, initially in an advisory capacity um, in the 
itself really moving up to 1963 and 1964, where it's worth remembering that uh, the sort of boots on the ground, if you like, were very much unofficial up to that time. Yeah. Uh, and the only combat troops who were really deployed were the 800 or so Green Berets who were involved in the building of these controversial so-called strategic hamlets, um, where uh, really the Vietnamese or South Vietnamese populations were trying to be shielded or at the very least separated out from the the insurgent Viet Cong is that um, prior, sorry is that prior to um Lyndon Johnson taking power yes right yeah I mean Lyndon Johnson um, helped complete the the process of building these so-called strategic hamlets hmm. in in 64 and later but really Lyndon Johnson's most famous for this escalation of the war that comes after the Gulf of Tonkin incident in 1964 and for the purposes of, of what you're going to want to talk about today really it's that point 1964 and onwards where yeah. there is more or less undeclared but still open warfare between United States forces in support of the South Vietnamese government up until really just before 1975 with the withdrawal of the last American troops from the uh, the embassy in Saigon. Right okay so this particular film that we've been watching to Five Bloods focuses mm. predominantly on the experience of black soldiers in Vietnam. Speaking broadly it's not something that gets focused on that much. Why is the role of black US soldiers so important? I've seen the film and I really enjoyed it and I thought the way it highlighted that was was incredibly effective. But one of the things that's, uh, that's just crucial to understand about this period in history is you've got two strands of history running very much in parallel. You've got the civil rights struggle yeah. that's been going on really since the, the 40s and into the mid-50s but really gaining traction after the Montgomery bus boycott and you've got the war in Vietnam. And when it comes to black political affairs in America, they are incredibly intertwined. So, so let's just take, for example, in terms of context. When we're talking about the Vietnam War, massive escalation in American involvement in 1964. That is the same year that the Voting Rights Act is passed, and it's the year after the Civil Rights Act is passed. And so civil rights, and um, black civil rights in particular, has been massively in the forefront of American news, but also world news for much of the decade preceding that. And so it's, it's hugely newsworthy. Uh, and it's hugely in the, the sort of public and even international consciousness, which is what makes it so interesting when lawmakers were so keen to point out that there had been big progress in terms of the desegregation of the United States and uh, progress in terms of black political rights, that as was so often the case, especially in the southern USA, the actual lives of people did not reflect that progress at all. So when we consider that in the mid-60s, about 11% of American people were black. Okay. And then you look at the percentage of them who were drafted, 16.3% of all draftees were black. So you've got this 5% discrepancy before you even get going. Yeah. Then when you look at the sort of racial makeup of the United States forces in South Vietnam, so people who were actually deployed, yeah. it broadly reflects the demographics of the United States itself. Again, about 11% of soldiers who were, who were deployed were black. But that only tells half the story. In fact, probably less than half the story. About 58% of Marines who were said to be in direct combat, dangerous military occupations, 58% were black. That's ridiculous. Which that's, is huge. That's a massive jump up there. And that's just in the US Marine Corps, who are a little bit of a special case because of the, the sort of roles that they took on in terms of search and destroy operations, uh, the kind of famous tunnel rat uh, yeah. operations that they went in to clear out Viet Cong hideouts and so forth. But even taking on, on a, a more broad look at the armed forces, you've got about 23% of combat troops being black. Wow. 
And so it's, it's almost double the racial proportions in the, the general population were actually serving on the front lines. So it's not just those who are being drafted, it's those who are actually being sent into the front lines. Yeah. On top of that, only 2% of the officer corps were black. Wow. That's so ridiculous. a massive discrepancy again. Yeah. When it came to the controversial drafts, and not only were a disproportionate number of black people being drafted for various reasons, one of the main being that um, they often came from poorer backgrounds who uh, and from families who could not uh, afford the uh, the sort of social connections to avoid the draft as, mm-hmm. as uh, many richer white people could. They were often not going to college, and so they couldn't gain exen- exemption for any of the sort of student routes that were there. And they often were not able to kind of join the sense of conscientious object- uh, objectives who often need to go to tribunals. Uh, and again, they were not socially uh, in a position to be able to do that. And yeah. so it was, it was more difficult for them to avoid the draft even if they wanted to. That maybe goes some way to explaining why uh, so many black people proportionally served in the United States forces at this time. They did have, of course, role models who encouraged them not to serve in Southeast Asia and not to volunteer for the army. Mm-hmm. And perhaps most famously, I think you could probably tell me. Uh, Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay. Got it in one. Uh, so Muhammad Ali, by this point, uh, he's already been very heavily involved in the civil rights campaigns as well as being a, an amazingly famous uh, sports personality. Mm-hmm. I'd like to read you, if I may, uh, just a part of one of his speeches that he gave that really justified his position because it spoke for so many uh, people of his generation. And we're really talking black American people, young men in America at this time. Um, he said... Why should they, they ask me to put on a uniform and go 10,000 miles from home to drop bombs and bullets on brown people in Vietnam, while so-called Negro people in Louisville are treated like dogs and denied simple human rights? No, I'm not going 10,000 miles from home to help murder and burn another poor nation simply to continue the domination of white slave masters of the darker people the world over. This is the day when such evils must come to an end. I love that line, not just because of the, the oratory of it, but obviously because of what it what it cost him. Mm. From what I remember, he had his title stripped from him and he was imprisoned yeah. for it. He was really willing to pay pay the price for, uh, for that. And he took a stand and uh, he's, he gained a lot of respect from certain uh, parts of American society and, uh, and keeps that even today. But when you consider that there were 58,318 total deaths in the Vietnam War. There were 7,262 killed in action who were black. Wow. Although that's only just above the sort of 11% figure for the general population, there is one extra really illuminating statistic within that. Okay. Almost all of them were in the army. Right. How many deaths do you think uh, occurred in the Air Force for black servicemen? I have no idea. You'd be probably thinking in, say, the low hundreds, wouldn't you? Yeah. It was one. Right. And it tended to be that combat personnel in the Air Force were college-trained people from privileged backgrounds. Yeah. And it just, it hugely illuminates that the contribution of black service people to Vietnam was hugely disproportional. And given what was going on at home in terms of the cruelty and the racism that black people were still suffering, regardless of what the lawmakers were saying, it's not just shocking, it's just so clearly and plainly unfair as well. So um, what are the lasting effects of the war that we could see now in modern-day Vietnam? Well, in modern-day Vietnam, of course, the North Vietnamese eventually won the war and the country was unified uh, under a communist regime in 1975. But when you look at those famous... um, those famous pictures that I'm sure many of the listeners would have seen before of the, the mad scramble of helicopters leaving Saigon. Yeah. It's really a, a massively 
shocking and bruising defeat for the Americans. So although they had largely pulled out of Vietnam by 1975 and could sort of claim, well, we didn't lose it while we were there, Mm -hmm. it's plain for anyone to see, uh, both as a historian and anyone who was alive right there, uh, right there and then, that this was just an enormously bruising incident for American ego. It showed that their enormous military might could not win on its own against certain enemies. There were 58,318 American deaths in Vietnam. It split the country in a way that it has rarely been split before until, unless you perhaps look at really, really modern times. Mm -hmm. And America was arguably diminished as a world power as a result of this. And that hugely affected their confidence to actually go into future uh, conflicts, especially using boots on the ground. And we can see the, uh, the legacy of that in uh, the Gulf War and, of course, the 2003 invasion of Iraq. Mr. Cloak, that has been absolutely fantastic. I've really appreciated your, your time on that. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Do you have anything you'd like to plug? No, thank you very much. And um, I've, I've got an Instagram called at Dry Wipe History, where I've got lots of um, historical events recorded on my school whiteboard. And uh, I've also got a whole series of lessons, online lessons, on the Vietnam War on my YouTube channel, which is Mr. Cloak History. Uh, and I'll spell that because no one ever spells my name right. <laughs> Mr. Mr. Just Mr. Uh, Cloak C L O K E and then history as you would probably expect. So Mr. Cloak history, um, you can actually follow an entire online course on the Vietnam War if you want to learn more. But that thanks very much for having me. I've enjoyed it. It's brilliant. Thank you very much. So uh, Phil, that was Tim Cloak. What do you think? I always, always enjoy listening to Tim speak, especially when it's someone he's passionate about. I mean, That's as much great. as you can be passionate about the Vietnam War, but obviously he's passionate about teaching it. And it really shows. I always learn something. Tim is a phenomenal history teacher. He was teaching history long before he'd even finished his his undergrad. He was amazing. He still is, you know. Coming back to that idea of a a lasting impact, it's really interesting to see what modern day Vietnam is like. I visited there about five years ago. And Mm. my sister actually works out in Vietnam. She actually put me onto this film in the first place. And she asked one of her colleagues who is Vietnamese, how can you be okay with the Americans in your country when they did this to you? And a colleague said, we forgive, but we don't forget. She also pointed out they obviously need the trade partnership with America. And if they were in a stronger position, then maybe they could shun them. But I don't think anyone can shun America. Uh, and they're, they're so heavily reliant on them for sort of trade and tourism. And what Gemma said was, uh, they know that they need them, so they'll smile and be nice, but they're never going to forget. She also pointed out that there's the effects of Agent Orange, the uh, the napalm that they use to sort of burn large sort of crops and areas still is still still visible today which is awful considering the fact that it relied so much on crops and and agriculture there is so much we could say on this issue that would frankly depress depress the hell out of us but that's a whole other podcast so let's get down to (laughs) finding the faith in the film I'm going to make it more exuberant every time, I think. I've, I've missed that. I, I can't <laughs> tell you how much I've missed that. Oh, mate, I've missed doing you know, it. It brings, me, it brings long... me just that small bit of joy, you know? In, the, in those long days when there was nothing to look forward to but sleep deprivation, nappies, and local lockdown, I've missed that. <laughs> yeah, well, it's all right. You've got my slight singing. <laughs> so the first thing I wanted to talk about was messiah figures in mainstream films. Now, I think that that desire to have a person you can believe in someone for whom you can have an uncomplicated admiration for is I think almost hardwired into the human psyche. I think that's why when we hear shocking facts about people we idolise, it can take people so long to acknowledge those issues that often they'd rather bury their head in the sand rather than face the realities. Often the way we see these people represented 
they become what I'm going to call secular proxies for Jesus, almost like a, a secular kind of stand-in for, for Christ himself. I wanted to point out one bit in the, in the film, around sort of 39 to 43 minutes in where one of the characters describes Stormy Norman as our Martin and our Malcolm. Now, this is an obvious reference to Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr., two of the most well-known leaders of the civil rights movement in America in the 60s. In mm. really simple, really reductive terms, MLK is thought of the one that advocated non-violence, whilst Malcolm X is perhaps best known for his by any means necessary stance. Now, what's really interesting in this scene is when they hear that Dr. King has been killed and they're ready to riot to express their anger. Instead, Norman manages to convince them not to hurt anyone, saying, you're gonna have to kill me first. Now, in this way, he manages to be a man of peace and strong. The two aren't mutually exclusive. And it reminded me of a point where Jesus was about to be arrested and Peter tries to stop them from arresting him. I'm going to quote from um, John 18, verses 10 to 11. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The foot servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter... Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And that, that's obviously really interesting because Jesus knows at this point that he has to be arrested, that he has to be crucified. But I think part of the reason he's doing this is I think he's trying to protect Peter because... Yes, Peter can get his sword out, he can sort of fight and the rest of it, but there are more of them than there is of him, you know? And I think by, yeah. by sort of stopping Peter, and I don't know if you if you, if you you remember, but Jesus picks up the piece of, of missing ear and basically sort of heals it then and there, you know? Yeah, he, he basically like sort of sticks it back on him. <laughs> sticks it back on with, a, with a, a handy helping of miracle glue, you know? So... <laughs> He's got some of that um, guard glue. Exactly. There's all, there was also a strong belief and a desire for the Messiah to be a military figure, someone who would free them from the yoke of oppression of the Romans. But Jesus confounded expectations. I wanted to find an example from Mark chapter 12, verse 13 to 17. So mm -hmm. later they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch Jesus in his words. Teacher, they said, we know that you are honest and seek favour from no one. Indeed, you are impartial and teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or not? But Jesus saw through their hypocrisy and said, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to inspect. So they brought it and he asked them, Whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they answered. Then Jesus told them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Now, that's interesting there because not only is, is Jesus saying, No, we shouldn't rise up and have a, a violent rebellion against the Romans, but also pay your flipping taxes, guys. You know? <laughs> so <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's 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 one of those things, it's like, look, there are some things that we just cannot help. Yeah, you might not mm. agree with them, but there are forces higher than us. And I suppose that ties into sort of the idea of like, look, you can't really go against God either. Um, you know, there are forces I'm, no, I'm going to stop you there for, for a moment because it's not. This isn't about rebellion I may have against got the wrong against, end of the stick. The, in this case, the Romans are in the wrong for occupying the Holy Land, and in the case mm. of the film, we've got to still dealing with segregation, white supremacy, and the white people are in the wrong for enforcing that. Yeah. But in both cases neither Stormy Norman nor would Jesus sort of say, yeah, kill them all. It's not what, what yeah, they're about. No, sorry, you know? yeah. That's, I think I got the wrong end of the stick there. Uh, but it's, it yeah. is good to see that he's still an advocate for peace. Yeah. Like, even if he is angry, even if he's thinking, there is something we should really do about this injustice. Like, he's able to sort of temper himself and say, look, this is not the right thing to do right now. If you react with violence, with anger, you're going to create more problems. And these things will never really come to a head 
said where you come to a positive conclusion. And I think yeah. it's interesting to see. Like, and I think a lot more people should react like that because, you know, if we did, we might see a better world. Yeah, it's, oh, it's, it's, it's a tricky tell. one because especially as we, or as our culture seems to get more and more right wing, it's curious to say where, you know, where do we, where do we keep going to turn the other cheek and where do we go to, okay, we have to make a stand somewhere. Yeah, and that's, it's, it's a hard distinction to make because there's only so many times when you can just go, hey, I'm going to take the peaceful option and, and I can't and I'm, I'm not going to react with anger or, or even shout. Yeah. So the second thing I want to talk about is the character of Paul. It's easy to see the Bloods as apostles and Norman as Jesus. So some people might be tempted to compare Paul to Judas, but I think that's reductive and specious. What Judas did was deliberate, but as Norman tells Paul over and over, it was an accident. Now, I want to be abundantly clear on this next part because it's easy for a casual listener to get it twisted. A mistake is not a sin. An honest mistake made with the best of intentions is not a sin. And yet, I feel like Paul and Norman's relationship in their last scene together is a metaphor for man's broken relationship with God due to sin. So you and I mm. talked about sin before and all it is is just choosing to do the wrong thing. That's all it is. And we, we can yeah. all relate to that. In particular, we can all relate to doing something that hurts someone we love badly. It starts yeah. to impact on how we see ourselves and by keeping it secret, it develops a corrosive quality. We know that Paul has a broken relationship with his son as well as a whole host of personal problems. It's not an accident that he's wearing a MAGA hat throughout the whole thing yeah and we can yeah. trace that back to the guilt he feels over accidentally shooting norman i don't think it's much of a stretch to say that we as human beings crave redemption if we fall yeah. out with someone we love we have a desperate need to be reconciled whether we choose to admit it or not which is why i wanted to draw your attention to that last scene between the two of them in the dream sequence if you can call it that norman walks up to him hugs him and tells him I forgive you. God is love. Love is God. He tells him over and over, I forgive you. It ain't no thing. And he ends with, I know you, blood. I died for you, blood. Now, the reason why I want to draw yeah. your attention to this, Phil, is that is possibly the best example I've ever seen of redemption. When people admit their wrongdoings and pray for Jesus' forgiveness, that is that is exactly what it looks like. And, and that, that is the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. It was deeply affecting to watch that, even as an atheist. like I, I yeah. watched it and all sort of real world context aside, it felt like that Paul was finally forgiving himself as well. Yeah. He, he finally had the strength to just say, it was an accident. I didn't yeah. mean to do this. And I'm not evil. I'm not inherently yeah. evil. And Yeah, to be able to let it go. I didn't choose this. Yeah, definitely. That had a massive impact on me, and that's why we're doing this episode on this film. Yeah. So I, I, I'm, I'm ends... not ashamed to admit that I did nearly burst really hard into tears over that yeah. scene. So I was just like, this is incredible and, and destructively been... upsetting, you know. I've been welling up just writing the script for this episode. Yeah. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, that is the end of our Finding the Faith in the Film section. We've had a review. Hey. A teacher that heard about us on a, a Facebook group, Mrs. Cree, she actually reviewed our BLM bonus episode. She hey. said that it was a great listen, well worth 30 minutes, and a really good discussion on a range of issues surrounding representations of people of colour. We'll definitely be sharing this with my media students to help develop their understanding of race representation in film. Thank you. No, thank you, Mrs. Cree. We are delighted to be on someone's curriculum. You are yeah, so Thank you very so welcome. much. You know it's, I mean? it's really validating and uh, makes me feel 
like I know what I'm talking about, so that's good. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening, guys. It really makes a difference to have a little bit of regular routine and to have something to be looking forward to, to doing. Um, yeah. Our next film is Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre, the 2011 Ooh. version directed by Carrie Fukunaga. I already know that one is going to be a hoot, and I really hope you can join us for that. Phil, have you had a good time? It was a sombre time this time round, but... Yeah. It is always good to sort of put some kind of constructive context to something that is just so upsetting. I had a good time because I learned things. It's quite an emotional one, this one. I can promise you the next one will be way more fun. Definitely. Bye. Bye. Gordon Film is hosted and created by Giles Goff and Phil Coleman. Mixing by Phil, editing by Giles. Our logo was designed by Julie Walsh, and our theme tune was composed by Rick Lee. Waffle editing by Natalie Austin. Guardian Film is a Dask production. Please rate and review, unless it's one star, in which case, write your complaints down in the form of a script. Apply for funding from the BFI, and shoot your heartfelt Indian titled Giles and Phil Are Just Wrong, using a cast of unknowns, and get it shown at Sundance Film Festival, where critics will call it bold and uncompromising. Then show it to Phil by inviting him along to the premiere. <laughs>